Uh, I'm preaching on a whole book of the Bible, all in one sermon today, and you probably already saw on the back of your bulletin, it is the little letter called 3 John, which is preceded by 2 John and 1 John, same author for all three. So if you would please turn there to 3 John, it's just 15 verses, and I will read them aloud, and then I want to move back through them and share some things with you that I think that if we can glean these truths, it will, uh, it will edify all of us. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth, beloved, I pray that in all respects you may prosper and be in good health just as your soul prospers. For I was very glad when brethren came and testified to your truth, that is, how you are walking in truth. I have no greater joy than this, to hear of my children walking in the truth. Beloved, you are acting faithfully in whatever you accomplish for the brethren, and especially when they are strangers, and they have testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. For they went out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles." Therefore, we ought to support such men so that we may be fellow workers with the truth. I wrote something to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first among them, does not accept what we say. For this reason, if I come, I will call attention to his deeds, which he does, unjustly accusing us with wicked words, and that's not satisfied with this, he himself does not receive the brethren either. And he forbids those who desire to do so and puts them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. The one who does good is of God, and the one who does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself, and we and our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. I had many things to write to you, but I am not willing to write them to you with pen and ink. But I hope to see you shortly, and we will speak face to face. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends by name. This little letter that I just read to you is the most personal of these three letters that are grouped together as 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Now, it may surprise you at first glance, this is actually the shortest book in the New Testament. Now, the way we have given verse ascriptions to things, it looks like that it's not the shortest because it seems to have 15 verses, and 2nd John seems to only have 13 verses. But actually, in the Greek New Testament, 3rd John is one Greek sentence shorter than 2nd John. So, 3rd John really is the shortest now, that is no guarantee that this will be the shortest sermon that you've heard, but nonetheless, <clears throat> the author is, has called himself uh, the elder back in 2 John, and there are some similarities between these two letters. Uh, he expresses in both of them the desire to have a face-to-face -face visit. Both are concerned with the treatment of traveling Christians who are ministering and who are being missionaries in the spread of the gospel. The one main difference is, is in 2 John, in addressing these traveling ministers, 
He is guarding against deceivers who are going about and withholding hospitality from them, whereas in the text we're looking at today in 3 John, he's concerned about those genuine missionaries and ministers of the gospel having hospitality extended uh, to them. And as we would expect, and even as I read you the text, you probably noticed that the term truth appeared six times, that he's speaking of the truth of the gospel and the truth that is in Christ. And church life and all of the Christian life is to be governed by this singular truth. And in fact, some scholars think that 2nd and 3rd John may have been written on the same day to the same church. Uh, whereas 2nd John was to the church at large, this one obviously is to a particular man by the name of Gaius. And so, as you can tell from the outline, three people are mentioned by name. Two of them have lives that are worth emulating, and one does not. And let's go through and look at each of those uh, somewhat uh, briefly. In verses 1 to 8, we find a good example commended to us in the person of Gaius. And he began the letter in verses 1 and 2, praying for prosperity, that is, for physical health as well as spiritual health. And notice, too, that we're not sure who Gaius is. There's two or three people by the name of Gaius that we find in the New Testament. Uh, in Romans, and 1 Corinthians, and Acts, and, you know, with some common names, it's not unusual to have more than one person that carries the name, so maybe we'll bump into him in heaven and identify who he is clearly, but we're not exactly sure who this Gaius was, but we do know this much, that he was very dear to John, because he calls him and refers to him as beloved, one, two, three at least four times. He keeps addressing him as beloved. So he was a dear colleague. I know the NIV says dear friend, but to me the word beloved, which is related to the root word agape, I think brings more of a sense of intimacy and affection. But he tells Gaius that he loves him in truth, And this is a love he has that is not rooted simply in sentiment or in human affection or goodwill, but rooted in the truth which is in the person and message of Jesus Christ. As we all know, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. When Paul wrote to the Ephesians, he said, truth is in Jesus. And that is the truth that the church is resting upon that he's writing to, that their very lives are resting in. So John loves Gaius in truth. And he mentions on in this letter that he loved the church in truth. And because of the truth, all who know the truth will love the church as well. Love properly expressed has to be expressed under the rubric of truth and rest in that. And what I mean by that, as one Bible teacher once said so well, love without truth is soft and truth without love is hard. And yet another writer stated it this way, truth without love is dead, 
love without truth is blind. And that truth is found in Jesus Christ as revealed in the Scriptures. And so as we know that we are called as Christians to love all the brethren and to even love our enemies, we should never succumb to this erroneous notion that somehow we just love people in a sense that we accept them or in any way approve no matter what they're doing. And love should never be expressed at the expense of truth. And that principle comes to me loud and clear with all of the gender arguments going on in our culture. And what if it's your son, your daughter, your friend, your relative, or whoever who's coming out as gay? And there's some things I've read that I find troubling that we need as Christians to be loving and welcoming them. Well, we love and welcome anyone unsaved that comes in the door, but we don't let people stay in that condition because you're not loving them if at some point we're not expressing the truth of what their status is before God and what the eternal implications are. But that's all I'm going to say about that. We could talk about this the rest of the time and I would be digressing. But his prayer is, as we said, that he may prosper, be in good health, just as your soul prospers. So he's wishing the best for him physically, praying the best for him physically and spiritually. Now, let me add as a footnote, this is not a proof text that we should be praying that we prosper in all things all the time. You may not be aware of this, but many in the church viewed in our chapel life groups the American gospel that talked about the serious error of the prosperity gospel, that if you're walking with God and truly believing Him for all things, that you will be blessed materially and as physical health and, and in every way. And often this verse is used incorrectly to support that. We must yield all such prayer for these things to God's sovereign purposes for us so as not to be uh, deprived of what Paul said in Philippians 4 when he stated, not that I speak from want, for I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. By his testimony, obviously, he had seasons where he did not have everything he needed physically. And at one point, even praying for a physical healing, which the Lord sovereignly chose not to grant him. And then, too, in James chapter 2, verse 5, James says, Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? As I look around at the ages of a lot of you in here this morning, I'm going to mention a name, and you'll see the connection here in just a second. Uh, his, name is, his name was Oral Roberts. He established Oral Roberts University. Uh, he really came on the scene in the 1950s, and he was one of the early preachers in America that pushed the prosperity gospel. And a man who wrote his biography said this about Oral Roberts. He was in school at the time. 
He had rushed out of his house one morning to catch the bus to class when he realized he had not read his Bible as was his custom. He returned hastily, grabbed his Bible, opened it at random, and read 3 John verse 2. This one here, in all respects that you may prosper. He had read his New Testament. He reported at least a hundred times, but this verse seemed brand new. He called his wife, Evelyn, and read it to her. This is not in the Bible, she challenged. It is, he replied. I just read it. Evelyn, he said, we've been wrong. I haven't been preaching that God is good. And Evelyn, if this verse is right, God is a good God. The ideas seemed revolutionary, liberating. They had been nurtured on a belief system that insisted you had to be poor to be a Christian. Evelyn looked back on that morning as the point of embarkation, quoting her directly, I really believe that that very morning was the beginning of this worldwide ministry that Oral has had because it opened up his thinking. So his entire ministry where he claimed to raise the dead and where he uh, established a principle of seed faith, all of that found its, its birth in this one verse, 3 John verse 2. Well, of course, it's always uh, dangerous to just randomly open the Bible and let your finger fall on a verse and decide that's going to be God's uh, word uh, to you for the day. But anyway, he goes on uh, to say that, and he uses an analogy here. I say analogy because I do think he has the human family in mind. But as he moves on, he says he was very glad about something, and the thing that he's very glad about has brought him no greater joy. And it's this. I have no greater joy than this, verse 4, to hear of my children walking in the truth. Now, let's be true to the text here. The context, he is talking about his spiritual children. In fact, he may have been the one that led Gaius to the Lord. But I think for most of his parents who are raising children or who have raised our children, that we would say, you know, what is true about spiritual parenting and spiritual children really is true in the, the family as well, as moms and dads as we're raising our children. Uh, We as parents delight in our children's accomplishments, uh, performing the tasks that we assign them, uh, displaying attitudes that we teach them, uh, delighting in seeing them grow and express themselves, whether it's in art or music or athletics or academics. And in fact, we as mothers and fathers, do we not expend endless effort and money to support and encourage our children's activities and achievements. But do you invest that same amount of devotion to their spiritual development? Do you derive pleasure from seeing them walk with God and follow the teachings of Jesus? Well, that's the very thing that has stirred John here when he's writing to Gaius, that he doesn't have any greater joy than to see men and women walking in a relationship with Christ and in obedience to Him. And I certainly hope that I'm speaking to a group of people who 
see the application to that, that that should certainly be true for our own children who grow up in our homes. Walking in truth. There's a lot of things that encourage us about life in the church together, uh, things the church is able to do, uh, missionaries that we support, uh, Bible studies that uh, we have going on at all ages in the life of the church, uh, appreciating a nice place to meet, um, basking in the generosity of God's people and the Lord Himself that we meet our budget every year, at least so far in the history of our church. And all these things are good things. But for speaking for myself, nothing delights me more in the life of the church than seeing someone who is unsaved come to know the Lord and then to see those people growing and maturing in Christ and glorifying God with their lives. And there's just no greater joy than that. In fact, in our purpose statement as a church, it says one of the reasons we believe God's called us to exist is to help believers mature in Christ and to grow. Salvation is more than just putting your foot in the door, as we know. It's in, we were uh, urged time and again by the New Testament writers to labor, to strive, to run the race, to get rooted, to mature. And these are things that, by the Spirit of God, we pursue with earnestness. So seeing spiritual progress in your lives is a thrill to Brad, to me, to the elders, and I hope it's a thrill to one another as we see ourselves growing more and more like Christ and seeking to honor Him in every aspect of our lives. But you know, when I read this verse, I had reason just recently to really claim that verse, even though he's talking about Christians in the church in general, I had a reason to personalize it to my own children because um, this past August 21st, it so happened that um, Joel, our son, who's an elder, preached that day, and uh, Brad was out of town, and I preached at two little churches over in the Panhandle that day. And so on the way back on Sunday afternoon, my wife and I turned on our phones and listened to Joel's message that he was giving here. And then it struck me, and it really brought tears to both of our eyes. We realized that while I was teaching the Word in the panhandle, Joel was teaching the Word here, and our son Jonathan was teaching an adult Sunday school class in Brazil in Portuguese. And so both of our sons were actually ministering the Word with God's people at the same time I was. And I have to say, this verse came to mind, no greater joy have I than this to know that see one's children walking in truth. But as I say, the immediate context, I don't want to be misapplying a verse, is to the believers in the congregation uh, at large. Now, <clears throat> walking in truth, a cause for joy, being hospitable, in verses 5 through 8, Gaius is known for being faithful in Christian love, but he's also complimenting Gaius due to the fact that apparently he is under some criticism from somebody in the church for doing the very thing that John is deciding to extol him for. And that is the way he treats strangers. 
Now, strangers is a way of referring to these visiting people who come through town and who are sharing the gospel, proclaiming it, and they are needing housing and food, and they're often needing the resources to send them on their way uh, to the next place. And he says it is good for Gaius to be doing this, and that the church has even testified of his love. And he says, you do well to send them on in a manner worthy of God. Why is this such a good thing to do? He states it in verse 7. The reason it is good to help people along in this way is because they went out for the sake of the name. They went out for the sake of the name. Now, of course, the name, capital N, as most English texts have it, is the Lord Jesus. Uh, when Paul is writing to the Romans, he states in one verse, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake. In Acts chapter 5, we read that after calling the apostles in, they flogged them and ordered them to speak no more in the name of Jesus and then released them. So they went on their way from the presence of the council rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer for the name. The essence of Christianity is summed up in the name of Jesus Christ. That knee to which in one place it says every knee will bow at the name of Jesus. And yet another place, there's only one name under heaven whereby a man may be saved. Uh, it's interesting in 3 John, this is the only letter in the New Testament that doesn't mention Jesus Christ by name. The only reference we have, which is a rather conspicuous one, is supporting those people who have gone out uh, because of the name. He says we ought to support uh, such people. Now, I don't know how familiar you are with the first century and when the church was born, but the fact of the matter is the spread of Christianity in the first uh, 60, 70 years, it, it's really quite astounding. I almost wanted to put a map on the screen for you this morning to show you a colored version of how the gospel spread through the Roman world. But the main way that it spread with no modern-day means of mass communication was people going out individually and in groups and just traveling to all the towns and villages that they could get to in order to spread the word about Jesus Christ. And there was a very practical reason, too. Inns, or what you would call roadside inns of the first century, that was very questionable. Um, they often were considered houses of ill repute. In fact, Roman laws spoke of the infamous character of the innkeeper as a dishonorable profession. They just weren't the Holiday Inn Express. It wasn't the attractive kind of place you wanted to stay. So it became all the more important for the Christian church to step up and for Christians to open their homes and to receive these people. There is a, a humorous uh, instance. I don't know if I've made mention of it in a previous message, but um, one of the apocryphal books 
uh, during the New Testament era. Uh, tells a little story about John, the author of this letter, traveling with some companions, and they stopped at one of these infamous roadside inns. And apparently uh, the place had been bug-infested. And they saw that even as they were checking in. And so John gave some suitable word of command, and so they entered and slept the night undisturbed. Well, apparently the next morning... When he went to leave, they found all the bugs and lice in a line outside the inn waiting to go back in after he left. Now, Florida Pest Control could do with a guy like that, but it's apocryphal. But it is a story that reflects what inns were considered like and why the hospitality was so important. But maybe we don't have so much opportunity today because we don't have as many of the traveling people coming through. But we do have missionaries who come to town. Uh, We do meet other Christians who are involved in other ministries that may have occasion to come into Gainesville. And when we learn that, we should be quick to be hospitable and to open our homes and to share uh, a meal uh, with them. Probably one of the ways we do that now most often is that the missionaries that we support For example, when Vivian Christmas on staff with Navigators, one of our missionaries, uh, she had a trip to Hungary to share the gospel and encourage Christian students. We took an offering here and we sent that to her. That is in the spirit of what John is getting at about we ought to be supporting these people. And I'm glad that whenever we've taken a special offering like that for any of our missionaries, you have always responded and given uh, generously and may we continue Uh, to always uh, be that way. And he says in verse 8, we ought to support such men so that we may be fellow workers with them in the truth. And I do feel a sense of partnership with them, and I hope you do. That when the Connors were here for the summer and they went back to India, that's why most missionaries refer to their supporters and supporting churches as partnering with them. Because you and I may never go to India But the money we give here and the money we send to support them, the chapel and the sight of God is doing something in India by the support that we are uh, sending to them. Well, after this glowing uh, commendation of what a great example Gaius is, the letter really turns rather somber in verses 9 and 10. Because there's another man in the church that has a totally different uh, reputation. He's a detractor. He's a troublemaker. In just two verses, we see that he manifests four characteristics that unfortunately we can still find demonstrated in some men and women today. And these four characteristics, let me just list them for you. First, a disrespect for spiritual authority. Now, John wrote something earlier. He says, I wrote something to the church. And is this second John is referring to or a letter that is not preserved? Uh, We don't know uh, for sure. But some wonder if Diotrephes did get a letter and tore it up and threw it away. It wouldn't surprise me. He at least ignored it. He was certainly arrogant. Can you imagine? He not only rejected the idea of supporting legitimate 
ministers coming through town, he's rejecting the very instruction of an apostle. He apparently was some kind of a leader in the church as evidenced by the fact that he carried enough clout to influence others to forbid them from even extending hospitalities to some of these folks who were coming through town. His leadership was characterized by this one little phrase, who loves to be first among them and does not accept what we say. He loves to be first among them. He was impressed with himself. There are some leaders who lead as they should, lovingly and humbly, and then there's others who lord it over people. He took pride in himself as a leader. One writer described Iotrophes as having a drill sergeant complex. He apparently liked telling people what to do and was certainly not very teachable. Second characteristic, slanderous accusations. Uh, my English text uh, says that he unjustly accuses us with his wicked words. Uh, the word that John employs there uh, in the Greek New Testament is a, a verb that was used of when a pot of water is boiling and it starts throwing off bubbles. So it came to mean babbling something incoherently, something that when you touch it, it kind of evaporates in your hands. But he was uh, being very slanderous uh, toward John. Certainly the Apostle Paul experienced this from some of his detractors. NIV, I think, says he, they were gossiping maliciously. So Diotrephes not only rejected John's instruction, he sought to undermine anyone else listening either. This lack of respect and submission to spiritual authority will hinder the ministry of any local church. I'm grateful to say that when I think of people who have fit the bill on this description, I've never known anyone like that as part of the membership of this church. And I hope God always saves us from that. But it's certainly, uh, a person with that mindset uh, certainly is ignoring uh, what Paul said when he spoke of leaders in this way, we, we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction, and that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Live in peace with one another. And the writer to the Hebrews says it more bluntly, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy, not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. And somehow Diotrephes didn't read those verses or he read them and totally dismissed them. Now, the response of the congregation is not to be a blind submission, But indeed, respect is to be given to leaders, and Diotrephes was certainly, certainly way, way out of line. Um, third characteristic was his own refusal to extend hospitality. It said in verse 10, he doesn't receive the brethren when they come. And as I've already mentioned, he flaunts John's teaching. And then finally, he is one who lords it over people. Did you see what he's doing? 
He forbids those who desire to do so and puts them out of the church. So I assume he's some kind of pastoral leader in this church. And he's excommunicating people who are following John's instruction instead of following what he's saying. He had sidelined the Holy Spirit uh, for sure. And I don't want to belabor this, but I do think we need to be attentive that when we have uh, believers participating in the life of the church, that we be careful that we're instructive enough that if someone has a tendency to have a, an exaggerated sense of self-importance or some folks can become very possessive and territorial even with areas of, of ministry, and I have seen this, uh, you know, from time to time, uh, I've dealt with a lot of young men over the years heading into the ministry. I think I've I think I've worked with 17 pastoral interns over the years, typically young men who are heading to seminary and feeling called uh, to pastoral ministry. But there's been a few of them that I have had real hesitancy about because of some of these attitudes. Uh, there was one young man, he actually didn't uh, attend my church, but he attended another church in town, but he had come to me for some advice, and he was heading to seminary, and he went to a seminary that I did not advise. And then he ended up coming back to Gainesville and being a, uh, an assistant pastor of a church of another denomination in Gainesville. And I ran into him uh, after just a few years, and apparently he had just been promoted to be the head pastor. And his very words to me, guess what? I'm now the main guy. I'm head honcho numero uno. And I don't know how that strikes you, but when I hear that, you know, I wince. That's not a healthy way for a pastor or an elder to see themselves. Uh, another young man that I actually did attend our church and did an internship with us, um, he, um, when he agreed to do the internship, he came and met with me in my study and I asked him what he thought his calling was, and this is what he told me. He said, um, Pastor Richard, he said, I respect what you do, but I just don't want to be the pastor of some church of 600 people. I want to be the next Billy Graham. I feel like God's calling me to have a worldwide evangelistic ministry. And I didn't squash him on the spot. I was just, well, that's interesting, you know, but God calls us all to different ministries. But this was his true ambition at that point. And then it pretty dramatically changed because I usually had a segment of the internship uh, on homiletics, and we had people give uh, messages, we videotaped it, and then we met with them as staff and we critiqued. And his message was just abysmal. I think even he knew at the end of it that preaching was not going to be, you know, his gift. But he's doing okay. He became a medical doctor, so he's, uh, he's doing okay in life. Still walking with the Lord as far as I know. But this possessiveness, uh, you know, I, I'm sorry, I didn't bring a clock. with. I can't wear a watch. What time is it, Brad? Oh, crumb. Um, I need to move on. Uh, the last thing I, I was going to say about this is um, I used to serve on the district board for the denomination, and there was a church really in trouble in Orlando, and we went down to try and mediate. And the pastor had one man in the church who was constantly questioning him, constantly criticizing him, talking bad about him to other people in the congregation. 
and he came to the meeting, and he had a Sunday school class that he taught that was my class, these are my sheep, and just constantly going, and I hate to say it, that church ended up shutting down because of this one man's insistence on trying to run the show when he was not the one that God had raised up to be the pastor. So when I read these verses, there are things that come to my mind that think, you know, that can just be so, so destructive. But verses 11 and 12, we can move to something much more positive. Do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. The one who does good is of God. The one who does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself, and we add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. Demetrius may very well have been the one that actually carried the letter uh, to this church. And his reputation is just marvelous. Uh, he has a reputation that's affirmed by the truth. His reputation has been affirmed by the church. And even the apostle himself affirms his reputation and states that all of these sources bear witness to him. But his call is to imitate what is evil. Excuse me. To not imitate what is evil, but to imitate what is good. I was just testing you. Um, and this is an interesting instruction. Back years ago, um, anybody under 30 probably wouldn't remember this, but certainly one of the greatest basketball players of all time was uh, Michael Jordan. And back in the 90s, Gatorade ran a series of commercials on television. I want to be like Mike. Some of you are old enough to remember that. Usually showed him playing baskets with, you know, the kids, and then the kids saying, I want to be like Mike. I want to be like Mike. And it's not unusual in many areas of life that we look up to people, whether it's that certain professor over your department, whether it's your parents, whether it's a coach, that there are people that we are very impressed with their character or their skills and that our inclination is we want to imitate that. We would like to follow their example. And that is what John is telling us here and telling Gaius is that we need to be about imitating people who are worth imitating. Now, I don't know how you respond when you first hear that. Uh, because imitating sounds like not being original. Uh, we have a term, oh, you're just a copycat. And when we say you're a copycat, that's not a compliment. But it's not meant in that sense. It's meant in the sense, as I was just describing, that there are things about people that are so commendable that we should want to be like them. And within the body of Christ, as brothers and sisters in the same church family, we should be observing things in one another's lives that are stirring us on and learning from each other, especially in our spiritual journey. John is not the only one to say this. When Paul was writing to the Corinthians, he said, I exhort you, therefore, be imitators of me. Fortunately, in that same letter, to make sure people don't misunderstand, because I've heard people say, well, shouldn't we be looking to Jesus and not certain people? Well, ultimately, that's true. But I think 
Paul clarifies that when later in 1 Corinthians he says, be imitators of me. He said it for the second time, but this time he adds, be imitators of me just as I also am of Christ. So when I am imitating something in another Christian's life, I'm imitating that which they are doing in their walk with Christ, that they are so Christ-like in their attitude or their activities that I'm wanting to emulate that. And I think that's a healthy thing in the church. And so we have families in the church who have very young children, a couple of babies born even the last year. You ought to be looking around at some of the people that have already been down that road and ask them, what did you do? How did you do family devotions with your kids? Uh, what did you do when your kids were teenagers? You're trying to decide what rules could be allowed or not allowed. Um, what is it that you've done to kind of help yourself get more established in the Word? And we should have the boldness to ask, and I think the humility to offer such advice. We want to be encouraging each other to be like the Lord Jesus Christ. And over in Hebrews, he actually says, imitate your leaders. And we are not perfect, but I hope that the elders and Brad and myself, I hope that the way we walk with Christ is something that merits emulation because of Christ in us, not because we're just great people, but because we are humbly coming to grips with what it means to serve others, not self, to serve Christ and to honor Him in every area of life. And thus, become examples to other people. I want to be a good example. Are you a good example? And everybody that shares your address, are you a good example? Are you raising sons and daughters that would like to be like you? Hopefully, if we are living for Christ as parents, our children are wanting to do that. And as I've said, it should be true of the congregation you know, at large. Well, he ends uh, simply by saying that he expresses in writing a greeting of peace to Gaius, but also he expresses the greeting that he wants to be personal and have a face-to-face -face with him. We don't know if, if that ever happened. So, three people, Gaius, Diotrephes, and Demetrius. May the Lord raise up more and more Gaius's and Demetrius's uh, here at the chapel. Would you pray with me, please? Father, this is a little letter, but it's a jewel. And we are struck once again that problems that afflicted the church 2,000 years ago can still raise problems in our churches today. And usually it orbits around people who somehow get off track and cease to follow the very dictates of Scripture about Christian testimony and the fruits of the Spirit and just how Christians are supposed to behave. Lord, we know that we never arrive at perfection in this life, but we thank you that when we devote ourselves to your word and be attentive to the leading of your spirit, that we actually do find ourselves changing and being more like the Lord Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would continue to have 
every believer in this fellowship uh, be an example to others. And Lord, may we be humble enough to respond if someone points out that perhaps we are not being Christ-like in a word or an attitude or an action. We thank you that you're the one building the church, and we pray that as we continue to march toward that day when we are with you face to face, that we will continue to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.